Hey, welcome to the latest episode of the Rust Games Development Podcast. This week I have some really exciting news. We have a new co-host, Forrest Anderson. Hello, hello. Uh, I'm Forrest. I was on the first Rust Game Dev Podcast with the Valorian team, and now I'm back as a co-host. And so I'm super excited to be here for all of the episodes and bring in a lot of different people from the Rust Game Dev community and talk with them about really cool uh, topics that are evolving and going on uh, right as they're happening. I'm really excited about this. Um, every time that Forrest and I chat, we just end up going on many, many different tangents. So hopefully it'll work really well. I think it will. Um, this week, we are joined with Alex N.A., who's currently working on a game called Dwarf World. And I've been really keen to chat to him because I've been following his development for quite a while. So Alex, why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us a bit about your background and how you got into Rust. Hello, everyone. So my name is Alex, and I've been working... Before starting to work in Rust, I've been working in the AAA gaming industry for about nine years um, at Ubisoft and EA and Ubisoft again. So <clears throat> it was quite exciting to see uh, more and more projects uh, are using Rust in, in in gaming and not only. So I started looking at Rust in 2017 uh, in the summer. Because one colleague, until then I was kind of uh, ignoring it because I thought it's just another go. And that's kind of ignorance on my side because I was just not investing time to read about it properly. So I thought, okay, just another language. It's a go type language. So I've put it aside. And in that summer, I remember the colleague who I respected a lot mentioning, you should take a look at this. It's actually pretty cool. And I said, okay, you know what? Fine. And since then, I got pretty hooked into this thing and looked at a lot of uh, YouTube videos, podcasts uh, about Rust, and uh, that's how my journey started. And uh, since one and a half years ago, I started working on my spare time on this Dorford game, which is quite a fun ride. Um, so you're working on a game called Dwarf World, which is inspired by Dwarf Fortress, which we happen to talk about every single episode. Um, one, because it's a completely fascinating piece of software architecture. Um, two, it just mind-boggling all the features that have been implemented. And the proc gen is, is a recurrent topic too. So obviously it's like a, a real good point of discussion whenever you're bringing any of these subjects up. So um, anything that's inspired by Dwarf Fortress, I absolutely love. So tell us a little bit more about Dwarf World. So... Funnily enough, it wasn't exactly inspired by Dwarf Fortress directly, uh, which which is kind of funny. I was playing at the time uh, Gnomoria, which is another game inspired by Dwarf Fortress, heavily simplified and with prettier graphics um, that you can... F uh, but unfortunately for, for me, uh, being addicted to that game, I think the developer stopped adding features to it. And I said, you know what, this isn't... Right, and I want to play a game like this one, but with more features, and that's how I started. And then I started reading about Dwarf Fortress and the systems in there, <clears throat> and the kind of simulation that's going on. And slowly, I've started to add um, similar features into this one. But it it started from a completely different game <laughs> initially, which is um, it, it's kind of funny because I I didn't really play Dwarf Fortress. I just looked at how it's made and what features it has in there, but I never experienced it as a player. I'm probably too lazy to learn all the UI stuff and all the interfaces in there. It's uh, coming out on Steam soon, so 
I I will definitely play that <laughs> version, yeah, the more accessible <laughs> one. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think it's got like a a lot less steeper learning curve, um, which is really really cool. So, in terms of like starting the development of of Dwarf World, had you done any projects before, or was Dwarf World your kind of introduce introduction to Rust? Or so I started uh, when I was looking at. Um, Learning Rust, I think the first thing I found is Ferris's uh, Twitch and YouTube channel, which is, his name is Jake Taylor, but he does this kind of demo scene productions, which are really, really small executables that have music, art, uh, animations, and all sorts of stuff that are 64 kilobytes. And he had a stream where he was building a N64 emulator, or I don't remember. Maybe it was N64 emulator. And I, I just learned following that stream. So that was kind of my first project in Rust. And then I did some advent of code and uh, tiny things like that. Uh, Chip 8 emulator as well. And then I started working on, on this bigger project once I've, um, I I got the basic idea of Rust. And then I jumped in head first into building my own game. And of course, I learned the hard way about... Uh, ownership and how you can't really build a game like you're used to and how you are kind of pushed into this uh, entity component system architecture because otherwise you're going to have a lot of pain trying to make everything work. So that's kind of how it went. I even went a step further. So before uh, all of this, I worked on a game called Door Kickers with some friends of mine from Ubisoft, uh, which is relatively successful, I'd say, but also we had our own engine and we had our own tech and we didn't use Unity. So of course, when I started Dwarfworld, I started from an empty SDL to window and that was it. And that was my engine. So it was fun adding all those pieces together. And until recently, I even had my entity component system um, implementation, uh, which was basically like the silliest entity component system you can imagine worked pretty much fine, but I've replaced it with goggles, which is a um, trimmed down version of specs. Um, but uh, it, it was kind of fun building everything from scratch and building all these systems one on top of each other uh, in a way that they're really, really specialized for this one particular game type. <clears throat> and this involved a lot of things like building your own task system and you know, when you build, for example, something in the game, the dwarves need to build a bed. How do they collaborate in building that build? Who brings in the wood and all of those tiny things? And you cannot imagine the types of funny bugs you have in building these types of games. Like uh, at some point, for example, you have people dying while, while they're working. So you have to have your game take that into account and reissue tasks to the doors that are alive and and it's it's really hard <laughs> and i got a lot more respect for people building these types of games after i've tried myself and i'm still working on it now yeah for sure uh i think one thing one very interesting thing when it comes to architectural projects like this at a very large scale is that um the amount of that you have to refactor and re-architect parts of your code base uh, can often take up like a lot of time and you kind of just have to rethink. I, I had this idea originally and this is how we would build it out. But now that I understand that this is a requirement, we have to do some th stuff differently. So what I'm sort of wondering is, as like the sole developer on your project, what has your experience been 
with having to go back and iterate on old ideas and iterate on old architectures. Uh, like you mentioned, you swapped out the ECS, uh, but like, wh- where do you find like maybe other difficulties or other uh, sort of like niceties with dealing with Rust that allows you to kind of re like to iterate on your idea? Yeah, I think besides the so there's two things that helped a lot, and one of the things is this is a spare time project. So I'm not when you go home in the evening or in the weekend, I'm not the most attentive person in the world. So it allows me to focus exactly on the things that matter rather than as I would be concerned in C plus plus usually like having that all of that in my head. So for example, the, all the ownership of things kind of is depending on you paying attention in C++, more or less. Um, whereas in Rust, you can relax about that and you it allows you to move to the parts that are a bit more important to the end goal. So that was one thing that helped me a lot. Another thing is uh, all the testing environment. I know in video games, tests aren't that popular. And I worked in, in games for a long time. Uh, and you have usually armies of people. And this is due to various reasons, mainly because it, there's no time to do proper tests and also because the gameplay evolves rapidly. So you have to take that into account as well. Uh, and also tests don't tell you if something looks awkward. But uh, for types of games like Dwarf, this kind of mechanized games where you have things building on top of other things and systems interacting, it's really easy to write tests and the Rust system, um, the Rust ecosystem helped me there quite a lot. Um, And ECS gives you, I've noticed ECS gives you a architecture that allows you to quickly swap out systems and components with other systems and components quite fast. So that type of architecture is quite a nice place to be in and iterate in. And I, I'll, one thing which I want to do is, after I finish with this uh, game and put it on Steam and whatnot, I would like to open source it so people can start learning from or my mistakes or, or, and see how I got in a place where I have this all these things interacting and so on. So it serves a little bit as an example. It's not open source now due to m- me not wanting to deal with... Um, complexities around it so not necessarily uh, so if you want to put something on steam there's if you receive a pull request you'll have to say no sorry i can't accept this pull request because i want to make money after it after and how do you distribute that so i just am lazy i don't want to think about it but once everything is done i really want to put it out there so maybe other people can learn from from these times of this from this type of architectures uh, seen in practice because right now the examples for games with ECS aren't that many. So I think the more we add examples um, that are open for people to look at, um, more and more people can start learning how to make games in Rust and what type of things work and what type of things don't don't really work depending on the game scale. I think there's some really interesting points there. Um, two in particular. So one is around software architecture and that kind of loose coupling of of code and systems so that like, you treat your ECS as something separate. So if you actually, you're decoupling your business logic from your frameworks. So it's like, I've got these bunch of frameworks um, that I'm using, but actually my business logic, the core business logic is separate from that. So I can change my ECS engine, but it ECS framework really easily and it doesn't affect the business logic or the game logic. Is that the kind of design that you've gone for? Um, and the yeah. second point is I'd love Forrest just to jump in and talk about... Um, the complexities of open source 
uh, like the overhead of when you open source a project, because Forrest is currently working on Valoran, do you get a... Um, does it make the project more complex in delivering a vision when you have people giving input and submitting pull requests and you have to kind of curate all of that stuff? So, yeah, so let's talk about the software architecture part first. Um, do you kind of aim to go for loose coupling um, and sort of decouple your business, your game logic from your libraries and frameworks so that make those easier? Or do you kind of like prototype as much as you can um, keep the code messy, but come back and refactor it. Yeah, well, one thing I noticed is kind of hard to keep the code messy with with Rust because it just even if it's messy, at least its ownership is well defined. Uh, I think I I don't really prioritize loose coupling. I prioritize having really simple things that work. So, for example, in the ECS uh, that I have, my systems are just a function that takes a that take the component lists as parameters and then I join inside of those systems, I iterate through them and so on, which is kind of different to how many ECS systems currently work where you basically have a function that gets um, already the already iterated through tuples of components. You get the transform component, the velocity component, and whatever other component for one entity, and you can apply your changes on those. Whereas on mine is a little bit different where you get the lists as input and then you do whatever you want with them. I found out this kind of simple systems are also easier to change moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think just like on the point of the open source side of things, um, I, I really like your approach, Alex, on kind of just working on it now, but intending to open source it later, because I think that's like a really great way to be able to have something that people can like watch you develop and uh, eventually play themselves, but then go and learn from it. Um, I think that when it comes to working on an open source project, it can be incredibly difficult to have like the infrastructure you need to allow multiple people multiple people to contribute, but also multiple people to give their ideas and inputs into the general view of uh, like what the outcome will be. And so um, I think with Valoran, we have a lot of people who like play like a support role where they're not core developers. And so for, my, for example, with myself, I don't work very much on the actual code base, but I do stuff like write the weekly dev blog. I do outreach with different interviews. Um, and that's like a great opportunity for people to find out about uh, Valoran. Um, and then similarly, we have like the game design lead, uh, Salentium, who works a lot on aggregating ideas and working with them and having meetings around them. And so um, because we have this framework, it really allows us to uh, work well with different, like a lot of different people, but it doesn't always work for smaller groups, I think. Yeah, because with open source projects, you don't have that sort of monetization stream. So, you know, the, the sense of ownership in the community where, you know, people feel invested in your game must be super important. It, it kind of must be a real tension between you know somebody coming along being super enthusiastic and submitting a pull request and you turn around saying like oh it doesn't meet our you know styling standards i know that kind of stuff's easy to mitigate um in terms of uh, you know kind of cargo format and various other tools but like you know if, if you felt the, the code quality wasn't quite up to scratch or the feature wasn't really kind of in line with what you're doing it must be really difficult to turn around to those people and say Actually, no, sorry. And deflate people. <laughs> you see what I mean? Is that a problem? I don't know. 
I, I think it gets easier once you start working with people and it's like your, your only job is to do code review and your only job is to uh, talk with the community and find where things are working and where things aren't working. And so it leaves the developers, like the core developers to be able to like answer questions and help people out, but also work on the stuff that they need to and not necessarily worry as much about people's code coming in that might be an issue. But then on the other hand, like Rust, so there's just so many things that we found with Rust that works so well for our project, like Rust FMT, making sure that everything is uh, nice and standard uh, in like how it's formatted, making sure that like the CI tests pass. Um, and then and like another thing, as Alex was mentioning, is um, you don't have to care very much about ownership. You don't have to care about how um, stuff is being passed through your program. Rust takes care of a lot of that for you. And so when someone is going to contribute code, as long as we believe that it is what like it is in a feature that should be added to the game, then it's likely not going to break other things. And of course, there's there's um, ways that this, that this isn't true, such as like if someone goes down and fixes like some very low level networking thing or changes it, it, it might have large repercussions. However, for the most part on the surface level, um, we, we can move much faster than I've seen many other projects move because um, we can trust that Rust, Rust will keep us in line. Is that something that like with unit tests, like you said, you've got CI and I was really impressed with Valorum's um, build system because it's insane um, how you do all of your builds. I love it. Um, but with unit tests, obviously like you get the bonus of being able to like refactor your code and know it still works because you can just run your test suite and you kind of get that also with the rust compiler right so i know we kind of joke quite often about if it compiles it's definitely gonna run yeah. <laughs> and you don't kind of have to worry it's not gonna crash it's gonna be fine um, it might not behave the way you expect it to behave but uh, at least it's gonna run um but unit tests obviously you're testing the behavior and maybe unit tests on a granular level are probably a little bit more brittle when it comes to refactoring but like unit tests as a kind of high level concept um, really definitely help in that regard. Yeah. And, and so I think unit tests, we don't have very many written. And so like unit tests, you'll t like test like a specific function or something like that. Make sure it gives you the output that you like. Now, one thing I was going to ask Alex about on this very topic is that uh, when you're doing, say, like an integration test on something like Dwarf World, I'm very interested in, on how that would uh, work in, in a way because it is deterministic. You can say that um, you have to make sure this dwarf gets the pathing to the right location. Um, and I, I'm not sure if you've done this, Alex, but there's an advent of code challenge, I think, from 2018 where you have to simulate like a goblin battle. And so that's, that's sort of what it reminds me of. But I, um, I'm very interested for your like integration tests and like your testing suite, um, how you feel that it helps your development. Because it sounds like uh, it's really integrated in a way that you can have like a whole bunch of different tests that make sure that if you change something, you didn't break something along the way. Um, and I think that would be like a lot more integrated than how we do it with Valoran. Yeah, so actually I wanted to talk about it a little bit because it's quite interesting. Uh, one thing I do is... Um, I don't really have a lot of unit tests. Maybe I have for pathfinding and stuff like that, which is <clears throat> quite obvious, but not for the gameplay system. So usually my tests are integration tests and they're quite high level. So for example, one test could be, let's take a, a, a silly one. If I leave a dwarf alone in the world, I expect him to die of hunger, right? So the way the test looks like it actually creates a new game and then it creates a world and then it puts the dwarf in the world and then it ticks the world for a certain number of ticks and then it verifies that the death cause for that dwarf was hunger. Uh, what's interesting about this is that it's 
the way I'm starting the game, I can even pop out the window and look at the test and at that world uh, evolving as I, as the test is happening. Because what I have noticed over time is once these tests become more complex, like you have five dwarfs and I want them to, to build a bed while one of them is bleeding and dies in the middle of an action, I, I really it, it's really hard to debug them using just a, a debugger and stepping through code. But it's really easy to, um, you know... You start this test and you have a window pop up and then you look at it like you'd look at the normal game and you can click on things, inspect them, have the UI, like the debug UI to help you diagnose issues. And this is something I've really found super helpful in my testing process. Um, being able to just boot the game and look at the tests as they happen. And also this makes sure that whatever you're testing and whatever you think you're testing is actually happening. Uh, if you look at the doors and they're actually doing something else or, you know, that might have similar results, then you'd be like, okay, I, I need to make sure this test is a little bit more constrained or a little bit different than things like that. So, so you're testing more kind of deterministic behavior rather than the sort of proc gen non-deterministic behavior. I'm just wondering if there's like a situation where it's like, I, you could think of deterministic as being like, if I send this dwarf to go and cut down this tree in the world, that like he goes and does it. But if he gets eaten by a wolf on the way, does your test fail? <laughs> it's uh, like, oh. do, do you, you just kind of, are you detesting like, only, only testing the sort of more deterministic stuff? Because obviously like proc gen non-deterministic behavior must be quite difficult to simulate or do you handle that in a different way by i'm not going to spawn a bunch of wolves around that forest and actually just check that he goes and oh they, I they go and check and do that i see what you mean no so the way i spawn things it's deterministic in the sense that uh when i generate the test worlds the even the terrain is the same all the time and i don't add entities to the test worlds unless they have um their um you know, the ones that I'm testing with. And I don't add, for example, uh, I have now a system that uh, spawns vegetation and things like that randomly. And all of those things are disabled in tests. So the only thing that's enabled is generating the the world with all those levels and all those cells. And then you add the dwarfs you want to see interacting and the items you want to see interacting in there. And I did get funny test failures because for example, at some point I added tools as a thing that you need this tool to harvest wood. You need to have an ax in hand. But in the test, I didn't spawn an ax in the world and then the test failed because <laughs> the dwarfs couldn't find an ax. And I was like, okay, fine. I need to spawn an ax here because now I require access to, to cut down trees. Whereas previously i didn't or something like that so <laughs> i do encounter the, those situations as well i i think um a really good point about this uh between like deterministic and non-deterministic is that say say you make something that's non-deterministic you spawn a world you spawn some dwarfs in it um the world is randomly generated um and the 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 objective is for the dwarf to get say from um, one small village to another small village and uh if you can get the test to run and uh, and you can like run it like say ten times, um, then that that's pretty good. But if you run it a million times, you find so much emergent behavior that you might not have expected. And so, for example, uh, with getting a uh, dwarf to have to pick up an axe to cut down trees, that's like one great thing that you'll learn. But maybe having run it a million times on different procedurally generated 
uh, pieces of terrain, you'll often find so many things that you could not have predicted. Um, and for example, cats uh, 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 getting drunk on alcohol because they there's alcohol <laughs> in the ground and it's allowed. And so I think <laughs> I think that there is a lot of uh, very interesting behavior that can come from randomly generated worlds, um, but it is difficult uh, in some situations to make sure that it, it does what you want. Um, but if you can make it run for a million iterations on your computer uh, on a procedurally generated world, then I think that it will make your test even more verbose, not, not verbose, but um, elaborate and like able to capture anything once you are testing it in CI for future changes. Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting with like running many simulations. I never really thought about that. But that's really cool. Just kind of run through a million iterations and see where it crashed or just dump out a bunch of logs and see what kind of emerged from that behavior. There you go, Alex. You can implement that no, into Dwarf World. No, I, have, I have even more work to do now. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing that's hard with this kind of things, I think, is knowing what to test for. So... I think it would be interesting to see how those tests will look like when you you generate them because even if the cats get drunk, you need to have some clothes somewhere checking that cats aren't drunk. So you have to think about this somehow to catch it because otherwise you just have a, a, one of those iterations with cats getting drunk, but because you didn't even think about this possibility, you'd miss it because you're looking at, I don't know, the cat rested or at least didn't die, but it lived drunk the rest of the cat's life or something. <laughs> so it, it is, I think they're really hard. Um, uh, these cat types of situations are really hard to test, I believe. But also, that's why I'm adding a bunch of logging and all of my random number generators in the game are seeded so I can reproduce um, exactly what happened. Uh, it, once you in encounter a bug, I'm pretty sure I won't discover most bugs with this game, but once some bug is discovered, I want to make sure I, I'm able to reproduce it uh, as easily as possible so I can fix it on, on my side. So that's something I've invested quite a lot on. And I'm still trying to remove some random number generators which aren't seeded. <laughs> I, I was actually doing this earlier, but yeah. yeah that's cool. Um, and I guess like you end up taking loads of save games off of players and playing through and a lot of your time will get eaten up by that, which will be quite fun, I imagine. <laughs> um, so in terms of like your development at the moment, how far away are you from getting a pre-alpha out? Or is, is there a point where you are you feel in the future that you'll have something that you're happy to release? Is that soon, not soon? Well, I, I did a bunch of work this uh, winter. So I think I'm quite close to getting some sort of an alpha out uh, to people to, to, for people to try. I'm just adding the last bits and bobs right now. Uh, mainly the UI. By the way, UI... Game UI in Rust is probably the most painful thing I have ever worked on. <laughs> Speaking about developing in Rust. So I went through all sorts of like, I'm going to use ING UI. And then I was like, okay, this isn't good enough. I'm going to use um, <clears throat> Thyme because it looks pretty cool. But actually, it, that didn't work either. And now I'm using EGUI because at least I can change it whenever I need to change it, that I don't need to build a C, C project. So uh, the interface is something I still need to work on and then um, do a bunch of balancing tasks. Uh, but other than that, I want to release a sort of pre-alpha or something to players soon where they can at least advance from spring to winter, 
have some dwarfs in there and try to keep them alive. And then I'll add more and more content because adding more items and more entities isn't that hard uh, right now, but it's just this kind of details. It needs to have some proper UI. It needs to have a safe system. I need to be able to reproduce any sort of bug that happens on a player's machine. I need to be able to reproduce in my machine. Having a sort of a report bug or send feedback um, you know, UI inside of a game where people can write some feedback, attach their save file and their log and send it to me to look at. Uh, those type of things are still in development. So I hope I'll finish those in the coming month or two and then start sending out builds. Uh, I have a, a Discord room where I'll put them <laughs> once they're yeah. ready, but yeah. I was going to ask, like, what what is your plan for releasing? Are you going to release through Itch or through your own website? Or uh, So I, I released on Steam when it's ready for early access, but this pre-alpha will just be on GitHub for people who actually want to, don't mind playing some really rough <laughs> version of it because early access is not a place where you can go with prototypes anymore you almost want to have a full-on game in there and you just and that's super polished because otherwise the feedback is brutal <laughs> from what i've seen so yeah. it's not early hey, access anymore <laughs> yeah is it are you gonna release on windows mac linux or yeah it, yeah it works on windows mac linux and um i think it works on mac i don't have a mac to test on i hope it works <laughs> it, it at least builds according to my github ci so <laughs> uh but yeah. So t- tell us a little bit about that CI. So are you using like Docker to build? Are you using GitHub Actions or? No, yeah, I'm using GitHub Actions. So I'm using that free tier mostly um, to, to build and test the game. And I run tests on all the three platforms uh, whenever I have CI time uh, spare. But um, one thing I found the was the, the most painful build, which, which is interesting because on CI, the easiest are Linux and Mac, um, whereas Windows is the hardest to have a proper CI build for, especially if you're using SDL2, where I had to just give up and uh, check in some DLLs and then that's it, uh, and use that. Whereas on CI, in real life, building for Linux and Mac was a little bit more problematic when I, I tried to build for Linux. Um, but yeah. <laughs> I managed to get around that problem by using a visual code package. Uh, so VC package, um, and then doing the builds using that. So you do cargo install, cargo dash, VC PKG, and then you it will then oh. fetch uh, all of the SDL packages and build them for Windows. Oh, that's interesting. Uh... I had a hack that was downloading the pre-built one that I also had at home <laughs> to make sure I have the same version. Uh, and I even had a discussion with someone uh, that was uh, arguing with me, why don't I upgrade SDL? <laughs> because it works. I'm not touching it anymore. I'm getting my window. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> so. Yeah, no, I, I faced exactly the same problem. Um so yeah, so I, I, that's how I got around it. So I'd probably just do a blog post. I'll, I'll at least do yeah. some sort of gist and then... Um, um, put it in the show notes. I think that would be super useful for people who are using SDL. <laughs> At least, yeah. Awesome. In terms of like your architecture, tell us a little bit about. So, so you're using SDL two uh, and goggles for your ECS, which I've never actually heard of. This is the first time I've heard of this. So, um, yeah. tell us a little bit more about some of the libraries you're using. You know your sort of technology stack. 
Yeah, so it's not that uh, complicated. I think the most important part is SDL. And um, in addition to that, I use raw OpenGL, so the GL crate. And I have a wrapper around it with a tiny renderer because all my game does is render images, like render quads. So that's super easy to do in OpenGL. So that's basically my graphics stack. And I used OpenGL here. I was really, really tempted a month ago to say to replace it with uh, a web GPU because I really like the philosophy behind it and it's kind of targeted at people like me who would like something more modern but they don't want to deal with Vulkan. But I didn't go for it because of um, the fact that I want OpenGL works on basically any random PC since a million years ago. So I've I've stuck to it uh, eventually. And I have the PNG crates, Serdi for saving and loading. Uh, all of my, I don't have an editor, which is uh, expected. <laughs> uh, and all of my component definitions are in a huge mega JSON file that gets loaded and then creates the actual objects from those definitions. So they're not one for one. They're just like a component definition that is only the fields you need to start a component and um Add it to an entity. And other than that, it's just some random crates. Ryan for some parallelization, random. I have noise crate for purling noise. And that's about it. Oh, the profiling crate was super useful. So I've added that. I was actually maintaining some bindings to a profiler, but I've replaced those with the profiling crate because I found uh, Superluminal to be super nice to use on Windows. So I switched to that now. Um, which is, I, I use Windows as my daily dev machine. So that's a really nice experience. And whoever works on Windows, they should really give this profiler a try. And um, that's about it. And Goggles is um, made by, um, I might not remember her name, but it's the dev from um, Starbound who gave the Rust presentation about ECS uh, keynote some years ago in 2018 or something. And it's basically a stripped down specs uh, with less unsafe. So I looked at it a little bit and I said, you know, this is fine enough for what I need. And I just replaced my own ECS with this one. And then basically... All of the <clears throat> systems are just functions that get a bunch of lists of entity of components as parameters, maybe the terrain, which is separate from, from that, and then process them in various ways. Um, I, as I said, I didn't find a specs type of systems, and most of the systems I've seen online assume that your game is a particle system. So, okay, you have now your velocity, component and your transform here and your um, what whatever else component you want. And then you iterate through these and the system just acts on those three things from one entity, which isn't necessarily true in practice because you might have um, needs to access a component only if something happens as you update other two components and be fine with that component not existing all the time and things like that. So that's why I kind of made my own systems where I can just query randomly components whenever I want them and iterate through tuples of components whenever I need to do that as well. So that that's kind of how it works in terms of architecture, high level. 
Um, there's a bunch of systems inside of the game which are more gameplay specific, like there's a needs system where the doors get hungry, hungry or uh, tired or they they have the need to patch uh, a wound that's bleeding and, and things like that. But um, I'm not sure if I, I could... I could go into those type of details, but high, as an engine, this is basically what it has. And I've tried to keep things as simple as possible, except for the temperature simulation, which got kind of complicated and I even wrote a blog post about it. And that was fun to implement because I wanted temperature to be a big part of the game and uh, influence and have dwarves freeze their hands and legs and so on when they don't have clothes that are adequate. But yeah. Yeah, I think uh, one thing I definitely agree with is uh, when when you want to target older computers, like you mentioned, like OpenGL, like just leave it on two point whatever, and then it can target everything. And I think that's like the same approach we took with Valoran for quite a while. And we're like looking into I think WGPU as it uh, can like target Vulkan, but then also have like an OpenGL backend uh, if needed. Um, but yeah, this definitely uh, uh, yeah you, you have to spend a lot of time kind of thinking about what you want to target and. Uh, yeah, what your goals are with that. And I think another great point that you brought up is like when it comes to ECS systems, uh, often like one of the biggest questions in Rust is which ECS system do I use? Uh, like someone who's new to Rust will say, oh, I, I've heard about ECS. Uh, there's there's like five different ones. Which one should I use? And um, really until you get to the point that you understand what your requirements are, like if you, if you need you have to know like data structures and stuff like that. But if you need like uh, random access at certain points, if you need just a lot of insertion, if you need just whatever, there's like a lot of different options, but you don't really understand this until you get further into the project. And so I think that idea of sort of um, separating things where possible is always good so that you have a layer that is your ECS, but you're only interacting with it um, with your own sort of uh, communication to it. So if, if you need to change uh, per se, like as you did from your own ECS to uh, something else, you can uh, do it uh, much easier. But then, uh, then again, um, you really have to just know your uh, like what what you're working on before you can figure out what type of system you're going to need. Um, so I'm kind of wondering. You mentioned earlier that you came from like the the AAA uh, industry, and so I'm, I'm wondering what kind of experience has uh, have have you brought from there into your own project, or maybe how you develop something, or how you approach uh, like indie games. Well, um, I, I did uh, work in, in the gaming industry for a long time. And I also worked on an indie game, um, like I mentioned before. So I think the most important thing that I got from there was the fact that uh, there, there was this one thing when I was just a junior programmer at Ubisoft and I was trying to perfect some random system in a game that was uh, <laughs> due to ship or something like that. And I remember uh, a more senior uh, person comes to me and says, you know what, you should just relax. Nobody will see that code and let's move on to the next important thing. <laughs> and that thing really stuck with me because when you start out, you just want to build like the fastest TCS system that inserts in zero 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 one microseconds an entity. But then you realize, wait a second, this actually doesn't matter. And uh, this kind of attitude was also present a lot in the door kickers project that I worked on and I helped them in there. So... There was this kind of... I don't think we ever deallocated textures, for example, in that game. We pre, we loaded all the textures at startup in memory and then used them whenever they were needed for those levels and so on. But I don't think we ever deallocated anything. So <laughs> just keeping everything as simple as possible is probably the most important thing that has helped me. And try not to get into 
uh, this kind of um, there's a huge difference between building a game and building an engine and people often get stuck I've seen in the building the engine part uh, whereas they don't really uh, there's two different skill sets that are needed for those two different actions and most people just go on the building an engine part and I've tried to avoid that as much as possible Uh, even though I kind of build my own engine it's not really an engine it can just play my game it it can just support my game it can't support any other game and that's kind of intentional so just building the bare minimum you need and then um moving on to whatever is important for your game not uh you know just because it is um nice architecturally or faster or something and actually i switched my acs out because it was just an array of components so like a vector of components that i kept sorted at some point i had so many entities that that sort was hurting me and i was like oh you know what this is a stupid this is a stupid way to build an ecs it worked until now and fixing this will take more time than just integrating something else and then i integrated that something else but that took me i think months to reach that point where actually it had an impact on on the gameplay other than that it it worked just fine (laughs) you know it's just uh, i didn't think about it until i started having bigger and bigger worlds and then uh, i was like okay this is actually a problem here and fixing this will take me too much uh so i just took some open source library but yeah i think simplicity is quite important if you're a solo developer or a tiny team it, otherwise you're n- never gonna finish uh, it's just a fact uh i i guess maybe you will but i don't know uh, I, I have yet to see projects su- succeed that are complicated yeah, i think there's an interesting thing about what you were saying Forrest, about picking an ecs and maybe that also applies to when somebody says, like, what engine should I use? And we're starting to see a lot more maturity in the Rust ecosystem around, you know, there's a few libraries, engines that are sort of starting to really mature well and have good documentation and people are developing games for them. So there's quite a lot of reference material out there. Um, But sometimes the answer is just try one because you don't know until you actually start to really dive into the meat of the engine, whether it fits your way of developing and i think often developers miss the prototyping stage and and, or are afraid to work on something and just throw it away and there's i I kind of encourage people quite often to work on a prototype and get your core game mechanic working and you, you don't necessarily maybe even need a game engine or maybe you know just picking any game engine that's kind of mature enough that you can throw a few graphics on and and try stuff out in a quick manner um or maybe even just using sdl to do that you know like what what's the smallest slice that you can take in your game um as as like a game loop and prototype that and and see if those mechanics work and then once you got to the point where you're actually yes this this game's going to work the mechanics are great i think you know it's it's a project that's really got legs and you can go okay, what engine should I use? Which is going to be the best for the kind of features that I need? You know, it's quite UI heavy. So what engine has the best UI or is, can I pick this framework and then pull in this UI library? And yeah, I I, I think there should be, or people should be encouraged to explore more and not worry too much about what particular engine to use right from the start, but just to actually just dive in and start working on stuff. Um, yeah, another important point that you kind of touched upon in there is, uh, I think, um, 
you absolutely need to know what you're building before you you pick your tools because then you get into this kind of trap which I've seen happen quite often which is okay I'm using Unreal to build my my game but also Unreal has this super fancy lighting system so now it will be silly to not take advantage of that and then you spend a lot of time tweaking global illumination or I don't know some fancy shadows or I uh, you know use some fancy feature of that engine just because it's there and you invest time in this whereas that particular feature is not core for a uh, core feature for your game it just happens to be available there and it takes it takes great restraint to just cut those things out and not not do them at all um so i think it it kind of ties up neatly with the point you just made i think yeah i'm working on a project at the moment that's really really ui heavy so it's quite it's text-based management simulation um and there's tons of ui and so it's, if i was to look at the rust ecosystem now I'm not exactly spoilt for choice in terms of what libraries I could pull in, what frameworks. So I did a prototype uh, just to test the game mechanics. There's there's one game mechanic in particular that I is, is I feel is one of the core mechanics of the game. So all I did was I, it, it, and that's combat. So I, I, I kind of wanted to create a game where combat felt, even though it's text-based, felt really in-depth. So that was my vertical slice that I could take from my game. So I just literally grabbed an SDL2 window, which is why I found out about the build system, by the way. Um, <laughs> grabbed SDL2, and I prototyped a game where you could do combat, you could target people, um, but their body parts, you could say, right, okay, this, this person's holding a shield in their left hand, a sword in their right hand. I'm going to go attack their torso first and then maybe dodge. And then I'm going to go and hack at their arm and see if I can take their arm off. But maybe you get a few blows to your head. So you have to really think tactically about how you engage in combat with, with a non-playing character. But in terms of engines, yeah, I wasn't exactly spoiled for choice in terms of what I could use and what was mature in the UI space. And so, and I, and I had an idea of, I wanted quite a skinnable library and I wanted something that, um, had quite a lot of robust features because even rendering text in a really nice way, you know, with scroll bars is actually quite difficult to do with Unicode and stuff like that. And there's a lot of considerations there. And and when I kind of looked at it on the surface, I, I thought, well, I'd probably have to, at the moment, roll my own UI and that could take six months. And I really don't want to do that because like, I just want to get into the core game mechanics of what I'm doing. Right. Um, so I actually ended up picking Godot just for rendering and using GD Native to hook into Rust and have Rust do all of the game logic and loop, and it just presents data to Godot, and Godot just renders it, um, which I think is super interesting in terms of you know how, how do you approach and how do you evaluate what game engines and libraries to use. Yeah, I think it's also a good example of how to integrate Rust in your projects, um, which is actually something people often um, don't necessarily approach um, in the most practical way. So I, I find your approach quite uh, realistic. In, and instead of you know going building your own UI, I said, you know what, I'm going to use it here. It fits through this um, GD native uh I think it's kind of like a plugin. I don't know how to call it, but um, it. I think the way Godot and Rust work together is kind of a good example of how you can use Rust in other projects which aren't necessarily Rust-focused. Um, another option would be 
tooling, I think, uh, where I'm not sure if you guys work on tools that are made in Rust, but I found that to be the easiest way to introduce and work in that language in, in some part of a larger project because it's kind of easy um, and low risk, let's say, compared to the actual project, like the actual game engine adding Rust to Unreal or something to the size of Unreal is kind of a huge task, whereas adding it to a tiny tool is easier. I'm, I'm not sure if you guys have experience with this. Um, yeah, well, I think for for with what we do with Valoran, um, we we're at a point where we really need to start working on this type of tooling because uh, we everything that we're doing is coded in the engine. And so, for example, when we generate terrain, it's coded, it's, it's procedural generation. Um, all of our animations are done with math, and uh, we, we've introduced some small tooling that allows you to hot reload. Uh, like, for example, if you change a mathematical function that describes how a sword swings, then you can quickly go and see how it works. But we don't have an editor, and we don't have a lot of extra things that would allow for uh, much easier usage of, uh, like, or rather the easy iteration of creative design. Um, everything that is done right now is either through a raw configuration file that gets loaded in or directly baked into the Rust code that you then have to recompile. Um, and so I think that, um, again, like it, well, for someone who's going to come and develop in Rust, a lot of the people are systems engineers who, as you mentioned, Alex, really do like doing that optimization and do like spending that time um, getting that clean code and like fast running code. But then once it comes to uh, the people who might work in something like Godot with GD script, which is very similar to Python, or Unity with C Sharp, that is, uh, it, it's like a middle language. It, it feels like scripting in some, some ways. It feels like a system language in some ways. Um, or with Unreal with C++, with each of them, uh, you you have like a different mindset going into like when you're coding. And so maybe the people who like working at the engine level, at the systems level, don't necessarily care that much to have a tool, whereas the designer who's working at the scripting level, maybe in something like Godot, would much prefer to have a very easy interface to be able to interact with a lot of uh, what they're trying to create. Yeah, I've not seen anybody using, uh, just that, just projects I've seen, I've not seen anybody using like a scripting language like Lua or Python that sits on top of Rust, yeah. But is that is that kind of what you're what you're saying? Um, yeah. So I, there's a lot of different ways to approach this, and we've we've been I, I, so I've been learning a lot more about this since I've like learned about programming languages and modding and that kind of stuff um, that I definitely didn't know like a year ago. And uh, with Valoran, we're looking at introducing a plugin system that is going, as far as I know right now, we're going to anything that compiles to WebAssembly will then be able to run uh, and interact with Valoran. Um, and then, of course, there's other products on the go, like the MUN language, which is looking to sort of be like a replacement for Lua that is compiled but allows for hot reloading. Um, or on the other hand, if you are able to get something that allows you to change very small parts of your code base uh, that don't need to recompile into the binary. And so there's like a lot of different ways of approaching this, I think, and it definitely is uh, project specific. Like for example, um, let's say your game takes one second to boot, then it likely makes much more sense to just load configuration from a file and tell the game to reboot and go to exactly where you need it to. Um, then on the other hand, like with Valoran, like you can expect you're gonna, it's gonna take uh, like two minutes to compile whatever your changes are and one minute to get into the game where you need to be. Um, so for that, then it makes a lot more sense to try and architect a, a solution that will allow you to edit um, how stuff is done in the game as it's running. Uh, and so there's, def there's definitely like a lot of uh, area here to be able to 
um, like choose what you need for your project. And if you think to many game engines that allow for this type of thing that's built in, like they've already architected these very complex solutions that aren't as apparent to an indie project or an open source uh, project. Um, yeah, so I think there's like a lot of middle ground there uh, when it comes to like tooling through hot reloading. Uh, that doesn't necessarily give a good answer. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's something that I've really enjoyed about using Godot because there's, there's a couple of places in the game where just even from what I've prototyped so far that actually it's just really quick to do that in GD script and any performance gains I would have got from Rust are just not necessary. Like there's, it doesn't, it's not intensive at all and it's quite simple. And actually just doing that stuff in GD script is super easy. Um, whereas kind of, pushing that into Rust would feel like a bit more verbose to write and, and doesn't feel like the right place. So yeah, treating GD scripts as, as a scripting language for like behaviors or some behaviors um, and, and some of the UI interactions rather than kind of pushing that back into to Rust has been really, really cool. And it'd be great to see more of that in the future. I can see, you know, being able to tweak artificial intelligence and stuff on the fly and just see how it kind of reacts in the real world would be really, really interesting. Yeah. So, Alex, um, tell us about what's next for uh, Dwarf World, what we can expect over the next couple of months. Well, uh, I think most importantly, I'm going to try finishing that UI <laughs> for the game. I am streaming almost every Sunday uh, at 7 p.m. GMT. So if you want to catch up on the game progress and see me bash my head against the keyboard as I'm trying to fix bugs and do last minute changes. That's the best place to get some some insight. And um, hopefully I'm going to finish my <laughs> my um, my current tasks that I'm working on as fast as possible so I can get this into the hands of players. All right, Alex, it's, uh, it's been super cool listening to everything about uh, sort of your development progress uh, progress and process. Uh, it's definitely been uh, cool chatting over this last hour. Um, I'm excited to see the alpha once it comes out and kind of give it a go. And I'm definitely also excited to eventually take a look into the source code. So uh, thank you very much for taking some time to be on uh, today's episode of the Rust Game Dev podcast. And uh, I hope that I get to either chat with you or work with you sometime in the future. Thank you so much. It was super nice being here.